1: Hey, this is Dave Cody, author of Winning Now, Winning Later. And if you want to learn how to connect with the best, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel.
0: Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chapel, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, If you wanna fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place because this is the Build Your Network podcast. Hey, what's going on everybody? Welcome back to Build Your Network. Today, I am sitting down with Dave Cody. Dave is currently the executive chairman of Vertive Holdings. Formerly, he was the CEO of the industrial giant Honeywell. He grew Honeywell from a $20 billion market cap to $120 billion, earning the company a spot on the Forbes 100 list. And total share owner return rose to about 800%, which is two and a half times the S&P 500. Cody served as a class B director to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for about four years. And then in 2012 to 2013, he was a founding member of the campaign to fix debt. He was also a Vice Chair of the Business Roundtable in 2011 and chaired its Energy and Environment Committee. President Barack Obama named Cody to serve as co-chairman of the U.S. India CEO Forum and on the Bipartisan National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, also known as the Simpson-Bowles Commission. Guys, this is going to be an amazing conversation with somebody who's been able to accomplish so many things in his career on a just super wide range of accomplishments. But first, really quickly, if you are a seven-figure entrepreneur and you know that having a podcast would benefit your business in some way or another, whether it's for the credibility or the recognition or the authority or for creating evergreen content that consistently builds relationships with your ideal client, whatever it is, you're just not exactly sure how to start a podcast, but you know that it'll be beneficial, have me and my team do it for you. Head over to travischapelcom slash podcast There's a quick application there and we'll jump on a phone call to see if it'd be a good fit for me and my team to build out a show for you so that you can focus on what you're good at, which is servicing your clients. And we can focus on what we're good at, which is building world-class podcasts. That's travelchapel.com slash make my podcast. Dave, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Can't wait to get into a conversation with you.
1: Well, I'm uh, very glad to be here and hope I can live up to that billing.
0: <laughs> yes, sir. I have no doubt that you will. No doubt. Uh, before, before we jump into some of the amazing accomplishments that you've been able to have in your career, Dave, I do want to build some context for those listening. And let's take it back, like all the way back. I'm talking 12, 13-year-old Dave. Talk to me about what life was like for you, family life, you know, school, sports, hobbies, activities. What was life like for 12-year-old Dave Cody? <laughs>
1: Well, I grew up in a, I guess you'd call it like a a French-Canadian enclave in uh, New Hampshire. I was third generation, I guess, American at that point. And I spoke French before I spoke English. So until I was three years old, I I spoke no English. Hmm. My mom decided that uh, she'd looked around and while we didn't have a lot of role models, she was able to see that the people in town who tended to do well Uh, spoke English without a French accent. Mm. French accent uh, could hold you back. And she didn't want any of her kids to run into the same situation. So we all went to public schools instead of the French Catholic school. Uh, They spoke no French to us from that point forward, and we had to learn English. As you might imagine, there weren't a lot of professional role models. I was the first in my family to graduate from high school. My dad had six months of high school. My mom had two days and had a year of secretarial school so she could get a job. And as she often said, uh, she wishes that they'd have been able to provide more guidance overall professionally, but you know, things seem to work out okay. The thing I would say is I got great values, I think, from both my parents. And I think they Kind of ignore sometimes or don't recognize the significance of what they provided to all of us in the values they provided about, you know, you work hard, you take responsibility for yourself. It's your job to make sure you take care of your family when you have one. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those things that really kind of teach self reliance, independence, and responsibility, sure. which I think were invaluable. I mean, it really, really was helpful. There wasn't much money in the family you might expect eight of us in a six room house wow. and my dad my dad was a mechanic so life wasn't easy from a money standpoint but my dad was a good provider and worked hard at doing that and my mom could stretch a buck like nobody's business <laughs> and uh, she made a point of doing that i remember all those years really well yeah or fondly i should say uh, i enjoyed uh, growing up with it that french canadian heritage was fun for me still is. And uh, I enjoyed that. It kind of led though to, because I didn't have a lot of role models in the community, I had a lot of ambition, but I had absolutely no direction. I had absolutely no idea where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. So I was accepted at the University of New Hampshire and quit before I got there because I thought, I hated school and thought, this is just a waste of my time. I need to get started with my life.
0: Did you go to school because of like familial pressures to go to school or was it something that you kind of took on yourself as this is my way out of this type of income level or something?
1: I'd say uh, from the time I was a kid, both my mom and dad, they used to tell all five of us, you're gonna go to college. Hmm. I don't care if you dig ditches afterwards, but you're gonna go to college. So that was kind of instilled in us. Another one of the kind of values that was instilled from the beginning was that we all had to do that. I felt like it was what I was supposed to do. So I applied, the only school I applied to, I got accepted, uh, but then I didn't go. I said, nah, I'm sick of school. Nothing I'm learning here is going to make a difference in my life. So I decided to work with my dad in the garage and be a mechanic. Found out I wasn't that good at it. And my dad and I didn't get along well enough to be able to for that to work. So then I decided to be a carpenter's apprentice out in Michigan. I drove out there to be with an uncle. I found out I wasn't so good at that either. (laughs) I decided that, okay, maybe I ought to just go into the service. So I enlisted in the Navy to be on a nuclear sub for six years. And the day before I was supposed to swear in, I I remember calling the uh, chief vegan was his name and saying, what happens if I don't show up tomorrow and to swear in? And he said, you know, you've made a commitment, it's the federal government, et cetera, et cetera, and say kind of an early insight into ability to think independently. Right. Is I thought about it and said, all right, what I want to know is, if I don't show up tomorrow, can you send the cops to my house?
0: Right, right. Like, I don't think you had, understood my question, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So he hesitated a moment and said, no, I can't do that. And I said, well, then I ain't a coming."
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so,
1: uh, and uh, interestingly, I was supposed to swear in the week before, and he called me and said, you're the only one tomorrow. Would you mind if we did it next week when we'll have a group of you? And I said, sure. If he hadn't done that, I'd mm. have ended up spending six years in the- Crazy to think about. Yeah. And I would not have done well on a nuclear sub because as I got older, I realized I have a claustrophobia. <laughs> that that would have killed me. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to stand it. I'd have been a washout instead of a success. So I managed to uh, say, okay, I got to get myself back into school. It seems to be the only thing I'm good at. So I spent a um, couple years at the University of New Hampshire, again, with no money, hated it, but at least I was getting my time in. And at end of my sophomore year, I was called in front of the assistant dean of students who said, uh, you're no longer going to be allowed to live on campus because... You just don't seem to be cut out for it. And I asked why, what I'd done. And she said, Well, no one thing in particular. It just seems like wherever you are, there's trouble. You're just a general troublemaker. And you could tell I'm still kind of proud of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that, that that's a positive thing to tell a young person without being able to cite any sort of specific examples. <laughs> like, just as a general rule, you're just trouble. So we don't want you to hear anymore, basically.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was a little disconcerting, but I was a little <laughs> proud of it at the same time, sadly, perhaps. Uh, so I decided, well, you know, I'm sick of having no money. I'm going to work nights and just drive to school during the day. So I did that and for about a year. And then I had a buddy that we used to go fishing on the ocean together and said, man, what a great life this would be. And we could make our fortunes. So we bought a fishing boat and decided to be commercial fishermen for about six months and ended up learning that we weren't so good at that either. Yeah. And he got married and his wife basically said, you're not going to keep fishing with that idiot friend of yours, are you? <laughs> like uh, newly married couples tend to do about all their single friends. Yeah. So we sold the boat and I got married. And all of a sudden, uh, we're living in a third floor, unheated, uninsulated apartment in New Hampshire. And she says, I'm pregnant and I can't work anymore. Mm. And I got scared. I got really scared because I thought it's cold up here. I'm going to have a kid. Didn't know whether it was, you know, boy or girl back then. And my kid's going to die because I'm a screw off. I did the analysis and based on my take-home pay, I was spending about two bucks a week more than I was making. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank. So I figured, okay, I got 50 weeks to figure out what to do. So that's when I went back to school and said, I'd better do the only thing I'm good at here. So I quit smoking cigarettes Started working out and went to school, got a 4.0 that year. And eventually that turned into, uh, I was already working as an hourly employee, running a punch press at a plant in Hooksett, New Hampshire, and managed to get an exempt job in finance. So I was finally a salaried employee and could wear a suit. But still, money problems just nagged at me. And I hated every week trying to figure out which bills I could afford to pay and which I couldn't. Hmm. I promised myself that I was not going to live that way. I was going to find some way to do better. Yeah. And I just worked at uh, and then I ended up getting divorced, made my financial problems even worse, and that's when I I really just buckled down to just doing a great job at work and ready to take on whatever the next job was if it paid more.
2: Yeah, just, right.
1: Right. I, I just needed money at that point and Well, it all ended up working. And I always tell my oldest son that he's the reason I'm successful because he scared the bejesus out of me and uh, (laughs) forced me to have an epiphany about what I wanted my life to be.
0: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollar sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at Indeed.com/travis. Just go to Indeed.com/travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com/travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, higher, you need Indeed. How much time had passed from graduating high school until what you're talking about right now in the, in the financial industry and getting a better job?
1: Took six years before okay. I got that first exempt job.
0: So, so now you're mid-20s. Yeah, I was about to be 24. Okay. So I'm curious to hear your advice here, Dave. If somebody is maybe in that position right now, they're, they just graduated high school, they're a young adult, maybe they're taking some, some classes at a college or something like that. You obviously did not go a traditional route, but it all seemed to end up pretty okay for you, obviously. What would be your advice to somebody in that situation in terms of you know what they should be doing with you know work, with school, with their goals? Like, do, do you have any overarching advice for young people coming into their career? Yeah, I guess a couple of
1: things. One, one of the things that I was able to do is I graduated from college with no debt. Mm. And I just had this abhorrence of taking on debt in order to make it through school. Yeah. So I, I just wanted nothing to do with it. And I figured I'd rather earn some money and be able to pay my way through school than to get done and have this big debt overhang. So I would warn everybody Try to figure out a way to do it in a way that gets you the least amount of debt possible. And If that means your college years aren't as much fun because you got to work, well, then you do. It's just, hmm. just the way it is. Uh, the second thing is uh, I've often been asked on the commercial fishing experience, people say, God, that must have been great. I say, yeah, it was. You must have learned a lot. Yeah, I did. What was the biggest thing you learned? I said, you know, the biggest thing I learned was that hard work doesn't always pay off. If if you're working on the wrong thing, I don't care how hard you work, I don't care how great your attitude is, it's not going to make a difference. Mm. So if you find yourself working hard on something and keep looking at it and going, I don't see a results coming out of this, re-examine the path that you've chosen. And the way I used to describe it to people, because one of my frustrations is when I hear stuff like, altitude is limited by attitude. I say, well, yeah, kinder, <laughs> but you got to have the right attitude. But if you don't have the aptitude for something, I don't care how good your attitude is, it's not going to make a difference. Mm. I could have really wanted to be a great carpenter. It doesn't matter. I just didn't have the aptitude for it. Yeah. I might want to beat Usain Bolt in the 100 meter dash. Right. I don't care how much I want it or how hard I work. When he's at the 100 meter mark, I'm going to still be at the 50. Right. It's not, not going to make a difference. So make sure whatever it is you decide to focus on is going to generate the results you're looking for.
0: Yeah. So you're very much somebody who believes in doubling and tripling down on your strengths rather than going out and trying to work on your weaknesses You know, solely. If you're going to do one of those things, it's better to focus on the things that you have a natural inclination toward being better at rather than you know, trying to do the 100 meter dash when you maybe don't have the aptitude to, to compete in something like that, right?
1: Yeah, you gotta, you gotta have an aptitude for it. And, you know, there's a lot of people say, well, you know, just do what you love and everything will work out. And yeah, I say, okay, that sounds nice. But, you know, I loved commercial fishing. I yeah. could have worked on it for 15 years and I still would have sucked at it. <laughs> it it would have never paid off.
0: Yeah, yeah. So sometimes, it was- sometimes it's better just to keep the hobby as a hobby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do
1: something that you're good at and that hopefully people will pay you for. Then you'll right. find your life's a lot easier.
0: So let's talk about that then. So you're mid-20s, you get a job in finance. What happens next? What are the next steps for you?
1: Well, this is where I got a lot of help from a, a boss at the time. He saw a capability in me. He didn't uh, talk about it a lot, but He really pushed me to do something called uh, GE's Corporate Audit Staff, Hmm. where it was really intense. You were working 80 to 100 hours a week. You'd only be home 60 days a year at the most, but you'd be traveling around the world just learning a lot. I didn't really want to do it. And quite honestly, I was a little bit afraid of it, wondering if I could do it or not. And he kept pushing me and saying, no, you need to do this. This will be a terrific experience for you. Hmm. So, despite the trepidation, I did it and it was unbelievably good for me. Yeah. Because I, I had never really traveled anywhere. You know, I basically grew up in New Hampshire. Going to Boston, 60 miles away, was considered a big deal.
0: Right. That was travel. Right.
1: Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, I'm having to go to Africa, the Middle East, Europe. I'm having to do it on my own. And Figure things out. And it's where I came up with a line that I used with my own sons was that You had to learn to Be able to be comfortable outside your comfort zone all the time Yeah, so that pushing yourself beyond what you were comfortable with became something that you were just used to that you'd say Okay, I don't know everything, but I know i'll figure it out Yeah,
0: to be to become comfortable with being uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's funny, like anything else, first time you do it, really weird, really tough. The 11th time you do it, not such mm-hmm. a big deal anymore. You're going into something brand new mm-hmm. and you say, well, okay, new location, new business, new stuff I have to look at. Man, I better buckle down and figure it
0: out. And right. you do. But at that point, you have so many times of past experience where you've been in that exact same situation and it all worked out. It's where that confidence and muscle starts getting really worked out, right? Is by putting yourself in those situations and remembering the last time that you did it and using that as something to just kind of use as comfort and confidence that you can do it again and then go find another uncomfortable situation and continue to push yourself beyond what you think is possible. But knowing with that internal confidence that, this is not something that I can't figure out given enough time, considering the last few times I've come up against something like this, right?
1: You are absolutely right because your first reaction as a human being is to panic a bit.
0: Right, to flee. And, yeah, to
1: yeah, and when you there. go through that panic, you're not thinking, you're mm-hmm. just having an emotional response. Yeah. And it forces you to start to focus on the objective, more analytical, okay, I'm stuck here. I've only got myself to figure this out. Right. What am I going to do? And I can remember flying from Germany to the Dominican Republic. I was the last flight in. It's August. It's like 100 degrees. I've got a big suit bag, a big suitcase, a big briefcase. I'm walking around in my suit, sweating like you wouldn't believe. The person okay. who's supposed to pick me up is not there. <laughs> I, I, w- what the hell do you do? I don't know where my hotel is. I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, you don't so, even speak the language.
1: Yeah. So I wander around until I hear someone speaking English and just walked up and said, Can you help me? <laughs> I'm stuck. I need to get to a hotel. And fortunately, uh, they were nice enough. It was a group of people, Americans, and they said, uh, Sure. Uh, you know, we've got this Volkswagen bus. There's no place to sit. And I said, That's fine. I'll sit on my luggage. And they, let me cram into the volkswagen bus i sat on my luggage they dropped me off at a hotel thank god there was an opening and then the next day i woke up refreshed and ready to go i don't know that i could have done that before it just you figure it out
0: right that's one huge reason why i believe in travel too is as a form of personal development because when you put yourself in uncomfortable situations like that especially in different cultures it really gives you a lot of empathy for lot of different groups of people and other cultures that may exist even in our own backyard that a lot of times you have zero empathy for unless you get out and travel and go experience what it's like to be totally bewildered and uncomfortable and have culture shock in a completely brand new place. That by itself, I think is a huge lesson for, for a lot of people that may be listening to this. If you uh, haven't made it a point to go travel and see other cultures in other countries, I think that it's highly beneficial, extremely conducive for your really self-help and personal development journey. Dave, so let's talk Let's talk a little bit about how specifically you ended up becoming the CEO of such a household name company like Honeywell. How does a kid that grew up in a poor environment with a lot of brothers and sisters, you know, the son of a mechanic, how do you work your way to becoming the CEO of one of the, you know, largest, most well-known, most well-respected companies in the entire world really?
1: Well, I'd have to say I never had any aspirations to be a CEO of any kind. I guess, until I was about 40 years old, because up until that point, I would just accept a promotion that was a bigger job and paid more. Mm. The one thing I did do was I felt like, uh, because I was at that point, I was growing up, I'd come out of manufacturing, I was growing up in finance. And I said, geez, you know, I think I could be a general manager because, you know, a lot of the stuff I recommend from a finance standpoint, they end up doing Hmm. How tough is it to take the next step and actually try it? I was strongly discouraged from doing that. Interesting. Finance folks, yeah, finance folks said, no, stay in finance. Friends said, no, you're good at finance, stay there. The HR community was pretty much lined up against me doing something like that and said, no, you you need to stay in finance. My wife at the time wasn't exactly the most supportive of doing something like that. Hmm. And it was one of those things where I had to kind of think things through myself. And I said, OK, if I'm 60 years old and I look back, am I going to be disappointed in myself that I didn't try to mm-hmm. find out whether I was capable or not? And it's the advice I give a lot of people nowadays because it worked for me.
0: Yeah, I love that question. I say,
1: yeah, I would say, okay, picture yourself 60 years old and look back on it and say, will I be disappointed that I didn't try even if I might've failed? And you have to be willing to accept that you could fail because you never know and everybody's different and circumstances are different, but you have to be willing to confront that question. And the answer is different for everybody because you know some people will say, I like it just where it is. Yeah, I think I'm capable of doing something else, but really I'll feel more comfortable playing it safe. That's fine. It's different strokes for different folks. I just knew that with me, it would bother me. I don't want to be 60 years old and wonder. I'm going to yeah, want to know if I could do it or not. So, pushed into general management. And I'd say I was successful in that first big general management job. And I thought, gee, you know, I wonder if I could be the CEO of something at some point. Yeah. I got that opportunity kind of roundabout way, uh, June of 1999. Uh, Jack Welch, the famous CEO of uh, GE at the time, Mm -hmm. I was called to his office to have a dinner with him. So I went, and first thing out of his mouth was, David, I want you out of the company by year end. So six months away. Interesting. Yeah. And I said, uh, all right, uh, well, what did you see that you didn't like or didn't see that you wish you had. And his voice elevated and he said, you don't understand, you need to be out by year end. And I said, well, no, I get it, I'm a big boy, but I think I'm better than you think I am. And if there's something I need to address, I'd like to know what it is. And his voice elevated again, he said, you don't understand, you have to be out by year end. And I said, oh, okay, I'm a big boy, I get it. I guess I'm never gonna find out. I never did find out, by the way. But it's one of those things that kind of forced, and he said he'd be helpful in looking for uh, a better position somewhere else, which he was. And I ended up as the COO at uh, TRW with a plan to become the CEO like in a year and a half. I was worried about it because they had fired the three previous successors and everybody externally knew it. So I was going in as the fourth potential successor. Right. So I set up a deal where if I wasn't made CEO by a certain date, They would have to pay me $10 million. And I thought, okay. That's
0: that's, that's not a bad deal.
1: (laughs) Well, I I thought this is visible enough that they're not going to want to fire the fourth potential successor and have to pay them that kind of money. Right. Well, uh, they damn near fired me because the CEO went to the board and said they'd made a mistake again and that I needed to be fired. And I ended up undergoing a 3 month investigation by the committee of the board wow. to find out you know whether I was the kind of person the CEO was saying I was and they came to the conclusion that it was time to make a change and to make me the CEO so it was kind of a pretty anxious 3 or 4 months as you might imagine cuz strategically I viewed the company differently than he did and he didn't like that so I ended up being the CEO there and I'd say it was uh, yeah, December of 2001, I got a outreach from a recruiter saying, hey, would you consider the be the CEO of Honeywell? And at the time, I said, uh, no, not really. I just got this job. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll send you a bunch of stuff. Take a look. Let me know. So it's early January of '02, and he calls and says, you uh, never got back to me. And I said, well, you never sent me the stuff. So I figured you'd changed your mind. And he said, no, 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 You know, take a look. So I did. I found it interesting. It was a troubled company, but I thought, okay, this is interesting. And I found myself wondering why I was so loyal to a board that hadn't exactly exhibited a bunch of loyalty to me. Hmm. And I said, all right, I'll make the change. I did. I went to Honeywell and ended up learning as bad as it looked externally. It was even worse internally. Ouch. And this... Yeah. And this, it'll sound weird, but I was the CEO of the company and I was not allowed to see the financials for the first four and a half months I was there until I became chairman in July. Wow. When I would actually ask one of the finance guys, you know, something simple, like how's the quarter going? They would say, I'm sorry, but I've been instructed not to answer those questions from you. (laughs) What? (laughs) What are you supposed to do? (laughs) You wait. And I figured, okay, it's four and a half months. I can wait and then I'll know everything. Well, once I did know everything, I wish you could go back to
0: not knowing everything.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. It was, uh, we had a lot of bad business practices, some unhealthy, let's say, quite aggressive bookkeeping, Hmm. significantly underfunded pension plan, environmental liabilities and asbestos liabilities that had never been recognized or addressed. I ended up missing my numbers. I went out with a lower number and then three weeks later had to go out with another number that was even lower. So all these analysts and investors who were looking at it, and a CNBC reporter actually said this at the time, we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, we're not sure this is the guy to do it because he he didn't make it to the first tier in the GE succession race. And he wasn't even the first choice to run Honeywell, which was, both were true. So it was a very inauspicious beginning, let's say, and yeah, that's why it's kind of nice to see where things ended up.
0: The leadership that you had to enact there, the empathy, the the relationships that you had to jump in and build immediately, and the reassurance and the validation that you had to give to employees and board members and all these different people is extremely commendable and you obviously were able to navigate those waters really well. What would be, you know, your top couple pieces of advice for people that are in leadership roles on how to manage people properly during chaos? Because it sounds like you came into a really chaotic situation that got more chaotic at first. And then you're able to turn that around and obviously give the company better returns than it had ever in its history. And uh to be at two and a half times the S&P 500 for shareholder value. Like, I mean, that those types of numbers are, are numbers that you don't get to on accident. So what would be a couple of the things that you would you, you know give to leaders that are managing during chaos? Because obviously these days, pretty much everybody's managing during chaos because the country is in chaos. If you could speak into that, that would be amazing.
1: I guess my advice is going to be a little nuanced here because I'm going to say I'm a big believer in a phrase called situational leadership that you have to, kind of look at the situation you're facing and determine what kind of leadership is required in order to make that succeed, to be a success with whatever you're doing. So if we were to, let's say, contrast two separate crises, the first one that I walked into when I got there, and then the second one, six years later with uh, the Great Recession, uh, both crises, but I was able to handle both of them differently. The first one, I had no credibility, And I couldn't trust my board and I couldn't trust my staff. So I had to, because three of my staff members had interviewed or expressed interest in my job. Hmm. So as you might imagine, that creates a very difficult dynamic. Right. So I had to be very careful about how I did things and how I thought things through. And it actually made me a better leader because I learned not to express my opinions up front in anything until I really had done a great job of getting at all the facts and all the opinions before people had any sense for where I might be leaning. Hmm. And that ended up being just how I led from that point forward because it was just a very different, but it was a real learning experience for me because, you know, you grow, you start as an individual contributor. You have to advocate, analyze. You go into your first jobs as a leader. You tend to do it the same way. You do some delegation, but still you're, you're the leader. So you have to say, here's what we're going to do. Well, the higher up you go, the more people you have, the less, you know, And the big trick is figuring out how the hell do you get all the facts and opinions so you actually know what the heck is going on before you make a decision. So I I became, I'd say, much more adept at how I led meetings and got the facts. It also caused me to travel a lot, to meet with customers, with salespeople, with plants, with town halls, to get a better handle on the pulse of what was actually happening versus what I might be told. You fast forward to the recession, a very different environment, because now, as you might imagine, changed out several people. Performance at that point, I had a lot of the trust in my, well, I would say complete trust of my board at, at that point. My staff had a tendency to want to trust me. It was just a same kind of leadership principles, but much easier to do, because I'd established that kind of rapport and understanding. The the thing I would say is, whatever you do, make sure you walk the talk. Easy phrase, everybody uses it a lot, but man, there's a lot of truth to it. And it's one thing to communicate things and to talk about what's going to change, but you need to actually do it in a way that all your people, your staff, and all the way down, no matter how far, how big the organization is, they need to see you're actually acting that way. If you say stuff like, no more of these, drive the short term, make the quarter, regardless of what that does for long term investment. If you say that stuff, but one of your people comes to you and says, hey, boss, to make the quarter, you know, I really need to load this distributor or I need to make this accounting change so that I can book the income. And you sit there and go, oh, okay, well, geez, you know, we got to make the quarter, so go ahead and do it. Or if they say, gee, you know, I can make the year, but to do that, I can't do this new investment that we've agreed that we ought to do for the long term. If people see you waffling on stuff like that, mm. they're not going to believe in you. Yeah, You really do have to walk the talk.
0: Man, that's amazing. And so that there's... may be more
1: than you ever wanted.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. That's perfect. That's perfect. I, I do want to really quick. We just got like one or two minutes here. I want to get your quick take on some, some obviously some networking advice. We haven't really talked much about that, but during your story, we can obviously tell that that's been a huge part of your life. Is the relationships that you've had, and there's clearly been a couple of people that have helped you know push you into certain opportunities, and maybe some mentors and things like that, and obviously some other people who are responsible for helping you get put into new opportunities. I know that it's a big part of of your life. And and even with, you know, President Obama appointing you to the, the things that he was appointing you to, just being able to nurture and keep relationships like that uh, has to be a huge part of your, you know, plan for success, so to speak. So this is the question that I ask everybody that comes on the show just to kind of get this conversation going. And uh, and then obviously just answer these next couple of questions just with in mind that we need to wrap up here in, for, in the next couple of minutes. But Dave, do you believe that who you know Or what you know is more important and why?
2: Well,
1: I guess I'm going to start with what you know. You've got to be capable. And getting back to the whole aptitude thing we were talking about, you've got to be capable. Because if you know people, but you're not capable of stuff, you're going to find that their recommendations are pretty lukewarm. right? And whoever is receiving the recommendation is going to know, okay, they're doing this to maintain a relationship, but that they... I don't really have to do anything with it. You've got to be a performer. The way I've always talked about it is while you need to be a performer, it also needs to be visible and performance and visibility are what lead to people supporting you and wanting to uh, help you out. So I I would lean more towards the what you know and performance. You got to perform. You got to deliver results, whatever it is you're doing.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree with that. Listen, Dave, I, maybe, we should, maybe we can you know schedule a, a part two at some point because I want to get into a bunch of other things with you on, on relationship <laughs> building specifically. But before we sign off here, I do want to mention the book that you have coming out, Winning Now, Winning Later. Can you kind of give us just the overarching principle that you want us to take away from that? And then where can we find a copy? Oh, sure.
1: Well you can uh, pre-order it already on Amazon hard copy or audiobook, which I just finished doing uh, a couple of weeks ago painful as it was uh, <laughs> I, did, I did do it because I was told the author doing it makes a difference that's true uh, I guess a couple of yeah I guess a couple of points one is one of the things that's bothered me is all this discussion of short termism that you read about and it's like nobody does anything for the long term any longer and they all make it sound like it's mutually exclusive. You, you are either short-term or long-term focused. And the way we ran Honeywell was that success was about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. And as a bunch of examples, do you want low inventory or good customer delivery? Do you want high margin rates and prices or do you want high volumes? Do you want Empowerment, so people closest to the action make quick decisions, or do you want good control so nothing bad happens? Mm. In every case, you want both. And the same is true when it comes to do you want good short-term or good long-term results. You have to accomplish both. And we take the book as an example using Honeywell to say, here's how you do it with a focus on things like uh, culture, banishing intellectual laziness. How do you focus on process? How do you do acquisitions? How do you get growth initiatives? How do you handle a recession? How do you handle a transition? All those things that say, how do you make sure you can accomplish both short term and long term?
0: Yeah, I love the message of that book. And I totally agree that the overarching message across most content is that it that it is mutually exclusive. You're either a short-term or a long-term thinker. But there is certainly nuance to that. And I appreciate you for bringing that up in this, in this book. It's very much needed. So if you're listening to this right now, you guys always know whenever we recommend a book here on the show, we always recommend to go pick it up right now so that you do not forget about it. And this is definitely one of those books that you're going to want to check out and pick up. So don't wait. Make sure to go grab a copy of Winning Now, Winning Later by Dave Cody. And I promise you that you will not regret doing that. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. had a fantastic time chatting with you and learning from you.
1: Well, thank you, Travis. Appreciate that. I enjoyed it.
0: Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies, as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle mastermind. There are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls. There's accountability crews and more all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.